Well, let's pray. Lord, you have uh, so many things that you would want us to know. You have so many things to teach us. And Father, the challenge for us who have that privilege is to represent you well and to represent your word well. And uh, Lord, it's something that we take very seriously. And so we ask you to be with these words this morning and that your words will uh, come through in their original meaning. And uh, remove the messenger, Lord, and whatever ideas he has. And just really bring uh, your word to light for us. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we pray. Amen. So, of course, we've been in Luke forever. And we're going to be in Luke, like, for a little more forever. Uh, So we're going to pick up in uh, chapter 19. And our scriptures this morning actually begin with verse 28. Uh, That's on your little scripture sheet there. Um, Just a little bit of a brief review, because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in this particular study. Jesus and and his disciples at this point have left Galilee. They've crossed to the east over the Jordan River to avoid Samaria. They've traveled down on the east side of the Jordan River. Once they got past Samaria, that was Perea. Once they got past Samaria, they crossed back over to to the west, and they went up to Jericho, and Jericho is a very famous and to some degree infamous city for believers. Um, And as he was walking through Jericho, uh, Jesus healed two blind men. We spoke about the one, but there were actually two there, probably um, side by side even. Uh, Two blind men who then followed him, and and he saved a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, who then followed him. And this is also where he told the parable we studied a couple of weeks ago about the ten servants who were given ten minas each and asked to invest them while the nobleman in the parable was off receiving a kingship, being coronated as king. And, um, and then he returns and he is, uh, he's, he's calling into account these ten servants. And we won't get into all the details because that's what the last sermon was about that I had the privilege of bringing. But one of the things we notice is how resolute Jesus is at this point to get to Jerusalem. He has set his sights on the Passover celebration, but not really. We'll get to that. And some accounts of the number of people that were with Jesus are almost difficult to understand in that time. It's all foot traffic, and it's all narrow roads. But um, we, he, he's resolute getting to Jerusalem. We see this in uh, Luke 19, uh, uh, verses, verse 11. He says this, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jesus recognizes that some things are coming together. There's a certain synergy here. There's a certain energy that's beginning to happen. It had begun to happen on the road down uh, on the east side of the Jordan. A lot of people traveling with him. And there's a lot of buzz. And they're all going to the, uh, to the, to the celebration. Um, but he has his eyes on Jerusalem for the most part. And in our scripture for this morning, we will also read something similar when he says, He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And the point is that Jesus knew that this Passover celebration was different from all the others in the history of the Jewish nation. And indeed, especially for himself. 
So let's go ahead and read our scripture for this morning. And it's on your scripture sheet. Luke 19, beginning with verse 28, says this, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage, Bethphage, now I've been listening to scholars pronounce that name. I used to call it Beth something, but it's Bethphage, I guess. And Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, where are you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So here's the major point that we're going to talk about today. So I have a one-point sermon. Don't get your hopes up. It doesn't mean it's any shorter. There's a one-point sermon today, and this is, this is what the point is. Jesus is preparing for his earthly coronation. He's preparing for this humble coronation as he, as he rides into Jerusalem. Now, last week we talked a little bit about Christ's coronation in heaven upon his arrival from earth following his resurrection. And we found this in Daniel chapter 7. I just want to read this again. It's become one of my favorite scriptures. You know, the apostles are with him, and it's after his resurrection, and he's ministering to the apostles, and all of a sudden, he is swept up, and he goes up through the clouds. And that's scene one, camera one. Scene two, camera two, is, is the camera switches to heaven and watches him come in. And this is Daniel's account. As my vision continued that night... I saw someone like a son of man, Jesus, meaning Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into His presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey Him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. That's the New Living Translation. Much, easy, uh, much easier to understand. And then we also had another scripture. I'm not going to read all of it, but it's when Christ returns. And it's in Revelation 19. I'm just going to read two scriptures. Verse 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And verse 16 of that same chapter says this, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So this morning we are going to read about what took place on what we commonly refer to as Palm Sunday. Now most of us know the story. 
Um, it's a difficult story to really understand the, the depth of this story because, for one thing, there are two different accounts of the same story, one in Luke and pretty much Matthew, and then John has a little bit of a different story. We'll deal with that tomorrow. But most of us, if we're asked what Palm Sunday is, most of us can say, well, Jesus was up on a, in a high place, and he had his apostles with him. And he starts riding down the hill, that high place. And as he approaches Jerusalem, people start turning out, and they start throwing their coats on, 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 the, on the path so the colt can walk on those things. And they begin to wave palm branches, and they're singing, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Michael W. Smith wasn't born back then, so we don't know what it really sounded like. But blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So most of us, if we were asked, what does Palm Sunday look like? What's the thing you remember the most? Jesus riding down a hill with his apostles and people waving palm branches. And as he gets closer to Jerusalem, they begin to get louder and louder and louder and celebrate. And that, there's truth in that. But there's more to it. So let me set the stage, if I may. Jesus and his disciples and a crowd of followers, some estimate to be in the tens of thousands... Not hundreds. And the tens of thousands begin the final leg of their journey toward Jerusalem. Now, Jericho is located northeast of Jerusalem. So, from Jericho to Jerusalem is an 18 mile trip if you use the Jericho Road. Now, it's a difficult road to travel. Because at some point, there's a very steep incline. Thus, the Bible is correct when it says going up to Jerusalem, even though Jericho is southwest or southeast of, northeast of Jerusalem. So we should be going down if we think geographically. It's surrounded by a very inhospitable environment. The stones that were used on that road did not stay very long. They weren't very strong. The, what, the, what they were using for some of the paving... It's difficult to travel as it has a steep incline. It's surrounded by an inhospitable environment. The road was a favorite for thieves and thugs and infamous with Christians because of the story of the Good Samaritan. This road has historical significance in that this is the same road that King David traveled when he was trying to escape from his son Absalom who had taken over his kingdom. And David's trying to escape. This is also the road the Romans will use to march into Jerusalem in around 69 or 70 A.D. to destroy Jerusalem. Many things in between take place on this road. It's about the only road. Luke 19.28 says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. So keep in mind that Jesus is not traveling alone on this road. There are thousands of people accompanying him, and everyone has Jerusalem in their sights as their destination. They're going to the Passover celebration. If they could see Jerusalem in the distance, that was their goal. We just have to get past this 18-mile road 
and twisting our ankles and having stones get in our flip-flops and all of those kind of things. And we're going to get into Jerusalem where there is civilization and paved streets. Jesus, on the other hand, has the cross in his sights. They're looking at Jerusalem. Jesus is looking at the cross. The crowd believes they are marching toward a new era of freedom. They believe that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to become their victorious king, king of the Jews. And Jesus knows he is going to the cross to become their suffering savior. And in fairness to the disciples and the crowd, they have good reason to believe that this was their moment of delivery. Jesus had done thousands of miracles over the past three years. And he was doing miracles on his way to Jerusalem. There are tens of thousands of people who are beyond ecstatic about all that Jesus has done. And he continues to do these things, but they have no clue as to who Jesus is. They know what he's done. They know what he's doing. But they have no clue who he is. Not even his disciples have figured this out. So I kind of wonder if we can find ourselves in this scenario someplace. A crowd is focused on Jerusalem and Jesus is focused on his mission. I believe it's possible for us to be so focused on heaven that we lose sight of our calling. Heaven's a wonderful place. And I would say that some of us don't even look forward to heaven, necessarily. We're pretty content and quite happy with how our lives are going so far. The crowd was mesmerized and excited by what Jesus had done, but they didn't know him. And there are doubtless thousands upon thousands of people filling our churches who are scholars of the Bible and yet have never experienced the sweetness of knowing Jesus personally. There are also thousands of pulpits filled today by the same types of pastors. Pastoring has become a career. I understand that. Personally, I understand that. But there is a danger in that. You begin to believe that what you're doing as a career is significant for what you should be doing on your own. So what's the difference in how these two groups of people live out their lives? Tens of thousands of people, eyes on Jerusalem. They know what Jesus has done. They can see what Jesus continues to do, and yet they do not know who he is. Well, the difference in these two types of people and how they live out their lives is um, it's seen where they invest their lives and their energy and their resources. That's one way. It is seen in how they approach and respond to a holy, sovereign, majestic, loving, and gracious God. And how they respond to one another. As believers in Christ, heaven has been awarded to us through the work of Jesus Christ. Heaven is no longer our goal. It's a gift. It's our future home. 
We need not struggle to get to heaven. We do, however, need to be willing to struggle and strive and to be faithful in our mission as Christians while on this planet. We must set our sights on the work Christ has given us the privilege of doing for His glory. We need to set our sights on the glory of God and on the glory of Jesus. But we also need to set our sights on the privileges He's afforded us in His name, having been equipped by Him to proclaim the gospel. And we must do these things with a cheerful heart. And then we read this, Luke nineteen twenty nine. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany <clears throat> at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. Now, Bethany, I believe, is a couple miles to the east. And Bethphage was a very small place, what we might call a crossroads, in the same vicinity. Bethany is where Mary, Margaret, and Lazarus lived. We'll touch on them a little bit next week. Luke 19.30 says this, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, and on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. Now, I don't believe this was an announcement from Jesus Christ to these two guys. I think it was probably along the lines of, of a quiet command, subtle and discreet. He chose two. said, you have to go ahead of us. I'm commanding you to go ahead of us. And you're going to find a colt. I'm sorry, you're going to find a donkey with a foal tied. And by the way, it's never been ridden. And untie those and bring them to me. And if anyone asks you who needs them, he says, tell them the Lord requires them. So there's a subtle and miraculous movement of the hand of God. God is arranging in advance the necessary tools for Jesus to use to fulfill his earthly mission at the precise, at the precise moments they are needed. The crowd's looking to Jerusalem. Jesus is looking to the cross. Jesus understands what has to be fulfilled between the time he is speaking to these two men to go get the colt and the cross. How about us? Do we believe that God works this way today? Do we trust that God in His timing will supply our needs? Will supply the tools necessary for us to complete the work God has prepared in advance for us to do? As a people, as a church, do we believe that anything God calls us to do is absolutely possible? And not only possible but it's going to be miraculously accomplished no matter, no matter how ill-prepared we feel we are. Do we believe that if God were to ask us to do something that costs millions of dollars and we look in our pockets and we can't even find millions of pennies, God, I think He chose the wrong one. That guy over there, he has two Lamborghinis. I think maybe the angel missed something or got the wrong address. But see, it makes more sense, God, if he were to do that. I've used this example before. Please forgive me if you're tired of it. Cottage Cove in Nashville, Tennessee was started by two people that had no money and all those kind of things. 
It's still going today. We were able to visit there when we went back. It's wonderful. And it's growing. And all of those things. Now, it made a lot more sense to especially my wife and me that if, if God, you were going to ask us to take over an abandoned church in the inner city of Nashville, Tennessee that needed air conditioning and heat and a new roof and everything else that you can imagine over the time we were there, that you would have chosen someone in the music industry. And by the way, since it's in Nashville, can you make it the Christian music industry that has millions of dollars and say, look, we want you to adopt this building and if, a three, if you three people get together, you can fund it for 10 years. See, that made more sense to me. But for some reason, that's, who, that's not who God called. And if you want to understand what faith is, not that I'm courageous, I'm not. But if you want to understand what faith is, embark on a mission that you have no way of paying for. I'm not telling you to be foolish. But if God calls you to do something, don't... We dare not let the world's economy discourage us. The world's economy is temporary. So God is arranging. He's supplying Jesus the tools to accomplish this mission that he's on. Trust me, if God has called you on a mission, he has the tools for you to complete it. In this case, God is arranging the necessary elements for his son's final journey to the cross. Jesus knows this and by faith acts upon it. Verse 32, So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Now, just a brief note here. I believe it's significant that Jesus told them to specifically respond like this, and the Lord has need of it. And here's why I think that. Uh, Jesus was a bit of a celebrity. And the way we know this is there's 10,000 people following, or more. And we know he's had three years of doing amazing things. Who all knows who he is? Rome knows who he is. Jewish leadership knows who he is. Pagans know who he is. The common man knows who he is. And so I think it was significant that, that, that when he said, if they ask who wants the cult, do not use my name. Tell them the Lord wants it. Because I think people could say, you know, well, of course they would say, take it. We read on Luke 19.35, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now the coronation process had begun, and where it was leading was no mystery to Jesus. This is the beginning of going to the cross. Now his whole life was that, you understand that. In chronological time, this is the beginning of going to the cross. Luke 19.37, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King 
who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Matthew says it this way, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of God. Hosanna, save us. Save now. Hosanna, the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And John twelve thirteen says this, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, here are the names they used. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, son of David, prophet from Nazareth, king of Israel. Now, all of these titles were accurate, but they were not adequate. These titles were accurate, but they were not adequate. Jesus was indeed all of these things. However, he was also their Messiah. So far, we've seen the active hand of God at this time in the details. Finding the donkey and the foal had never been ridden. This is what the man is going to say. And if he says this, this is, what you, this is how you need to respond. And it happened. And they brought the foal back and they put Jesus upon it. We've seen him in the details. But God is active in much more than the details. In Zechariah 9.9, he says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy was spoken 500 years prior to Christ beginning to go down that hill. And as astounding as that may be, there is yet another prophecy that is even more astounding. Daniel chapter 9, I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation because it's easier to follow. He says this, A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, this prophecy is given to Israel from Daniel in a plea for them to repent and clean up the mess their sins had made before judgment would arrive. We'll talk more about that in just a couple seconds. Verse 25 says this, And now listen and understand, seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. I have to give credit where credit is due here, and I'm, I'm glad to do that. I believe John MacArthur explains this very well. I'm just going to read you what he said. And you can go back and study these numbers if you want to. So Jerusalem is the place, and the time is now. And it has to be this Passover in the year AD 30. Why? Because this is exactly 483 years after Daniel's prophecy. The prophecy of Daniel coming from God was that in 69 times 7 weeks, and those represent years, 
the Messiah would be cut off. He would be killed 483 years from the time Artaxerxes made his decree in 440 B.C. So the decree is made in 444 B.C. The prophet says that 483 years later, the Messiah will be cut off. It is this year, A.D. 30, that Jesus is riding on the foal of a donkey toward Jerusalem. It must happen in this city, in this year. It must happen on the Friday when Passover lambs are executed. To the day. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. And he will be cut off as if nothing had happened. That he did no good. The prophecy is being fulfilled to the day. Why? Because Jesus is the perfect and final Passover lamb. Therefore, his sacrifice must take place according to the letter of the law and in the process fulfill every Old Testament prophecy of their Messiah. Back to the procession. We know that there are thousands of people following Jesus. We know that many in that crowd began to sing songs and praise Him. We know that the ruckus they were creating caught the attention of those already present at the Passover celebration. That's in John. Excitement was in the air. Within this procession are the apostles, two recently healed blind men, a converted chief tax collector, many others who had witnessed the miracles of Jesus, men women and children, and they were loud and joyful and going crazy for the wrong reason. But they were going crazy. You could not miss this if you were in the area. Who else was in the crowd? Pharisees were in the crowd. See, they're always in the crowd. The enemy is always in the crowd. Were they celebrating and singing and praising God? Of course not. They never did. And so this was their response to what they were seeing. Luke 19.39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your disciples. You know, I feel kind of badly for these guys in a way. I think sometimes I can relate to the Pharisees more than I can as a believer. I hate to say that to my church. You know, I can be pretty human. God is doing magnificent things right before their eyes. I mean, He's doing things that should catch the attention of everyone and everyone should start bowing down. That's the kind of things He's doing. He's fulfilling prophecy in their midst. They are living in such a unique time in world history. They are actually traveling with Jesus. They may have actually touched Him and heard His voice, heard Him laugh, and perhaps they may have even observed Him weep. They saw people raised from the dead, healed of leprosy. They saw crippled men dance, demons cast out. And the more they saw, the angrier and the more bitter they became. Do you know people like this? 
the more Jesus touches them and the more they hear about him, the angrier they grow. If you tried to minister to someone like that, maybe you're one of them. Everyone else is cheering and rejoicing and celebrating and you find yourself being cynical and bitter and angry. So what was happening at that point in time that compelled the Pharisees to confront him? They they confronted him often. But at this point in time, in this scenario, something pushed them to get within a proximity of him to rebuke him. One verse tells us what made them act. The verse that, that pushed them over the edge is the crowd was singing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In their view, these people were committing blasphemy. That was bad enough, but what really bothered them is that Jesus did not stop or rebuke them. He was receiving their praises. It wasn't always the case. There were times when someone said, you're the Messiah. He goes, shh. (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. But now he's receiving the praise. I don't think this was lost on these guys. There's something else here that is kind of tucked away in their reasoning, I think. They had the authority to rebuke these people who were praising him. They had the authority. But they didn't. I think they were afraid. The tide had turned. This was a different Jesus in their eyes. And it's Passover. And there's 10,000 people. And they're in the middle of this. And he's headed to Jerusalem. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, this is what we assume. That when it says the very stones will cry out, this is what we assume. We assume that what Jesus is saying is saying, if I do not let these people praise me, the stones will praise me. Not so fast. I think this was a loaded answer, and it was also damning to these Pharisees. There is a specific meaning to this phrase when it comes to sin and judgment. Genesis 4, 8 says this, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. When the, when the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Who was the only witness to the murder? Cain. Jesus said, where is your brother? He said, I don't know. Get this. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me where? From the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Joshua twenty four twenty five says this. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. 
And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth tree, under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against you, against us, for it has heard the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. Habakkuk. 2, 10 and 11 says this, You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork. Respond. Now, there are marvelous scriptures that refer to rocks and trees singing praises God. But in context, I don't think this is it. I think in context, Jesus is saying, you don't, you don't get it, do you? If you refuse to acknowledge me, if they refuse to acknowledge me, these stones will cry out as a witness against you. As believers in Christ, heaven has been awarded to us through the work of Jesus Christ. Heaven is no longer our goal. It is our future home. We need not struggle to get to heaven. We do, however, need to be willing to struggle and strive to fulfill the mission Christ has given us. I don't think there's anything wrong as believers we look at the cross. A lot. Heaven belongs to us. The cross is our mission. Do we believe that God works this way today? Do we trust that God in His timing is doing the same thing for us that He was doing for those apostles in order to make the mission of Jesus Christ possible? You know, maybe your mission is to make somebody else's mission to succeed. See, these Pharisees, they weren't believers. But I have known believers that act the very same way. The more God tries to bless them, the more they resist because all blessings are not built around convenience and reward. Some blessings are designed to cripple us so we can know Jesus at a deeper level. I was having a conversation with someone this morning and jokingly I said, you know, I keep telling God I'm not courageous. I'm not a brave man. I'm not a brave man. I keep telling God, I'm not a brave man. Because I know what he does with brave men. In all fairness and, and, and reducing your view of what you may have of me, God, I don't want the kind of testimony that someone will write a book about. See, my humanity and my flesh says, church is fine. Let's just keep it, what we have. This is good. You know, the more people we have, the more hours I have to work every day. I love this church. It's my flesh. And by the way, all of, the, all of this is by design. 
It's all by design. God didn't get the wrong address if he asked you to do something you can't accomplish. He knows where you live. And he also knows your fears and he knows your flesh. He knows your track record. He knows your failures. And how rewarding it would be if God would choose a failure to glorify himself. So now I'm saying, God, I'm not a failure. I'm not courageous. I'm not a failure. My flesh fears this. Fears it. But we should welcome it and receive it. Father, you are good. We've read these passages many times, and if we haven't read them, we've seen them portrayed on television, or we've heard them. But God, how different it is when we begin to view this event through the eyes of your Son, whose eyes were on the cross. He was looking past Jerusalem. So God, may we also make sure that our eyes are on the cross. And the next time Jesus asks us to do something, when God asks us to do something, may the answer be a resounding yes. 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 God, thank you for taking um, ordinary people and doing wonderful things through them for your glory. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. love to pray with you. If you would like to have prayer, please feel free to come forward.